you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding, and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. Today, I'm really happy to welcome Amir Halim, CEO and co-founder of Helium. Welcome, Amir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I believe the way that you describe Helium at a high level is the world's first peer-to-peer wireless network, um, also called the People's Network, that creates an entirely new wireless economy. We're going to get into that a little bit later, but ultimately looks to append or flip the traditional telecom model of building out wireless infrastructure. Um, So Helium was founded in 2013 um, by yourself and Sean Fanning of Napster fame and Sean Carey with the mission to make uh, kind of build a more kind of connected devices. You've got a who's who of backer um, from Multicoin, USV, Munich Re, presumably their venture arm, Mark Beinhoff personally, as I understand it. Um, And... Last time I checked, which was yesterday, I don't know how frequently these things change, but according to the Block Explorer, there were just shy of 18,000 hotspots pretty pretty much globally, um, although heavily concentrated in North America and Europe. And it looked like you had some partnerships with Salesforce and Lime, as in, at least I know them as scooters. I'm sure they're doing lots of other stuff too. Did I get all of that right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, it's a it's a big, ambitious vision of a of a thing. Um, but yeah, t- telecom is just like the more time I spend in this world, it's like the most insidious industry. And so, um, approaching it with this sort of decentralized crypto forward thing is is just a really interesting way of of solving what I think is one of the hardest problems to solve. And so, yeah, we've had we've had some good success, and and happy to to chat about any of it and, and get into some of it. Yeah. And so, as I said, Helium was founded in 2013. So presumably it was a pre-blockchain project um, startup. And presumably at some point you felt that A, a blockchain, but also the kind of game theoretics that to- a token and tokenization would enable would somehow mean that a token optimized instance of this network would be um, beneficial. So I think it's going to be interesting to get into the weeds on that journey and the decisioning behind it. Um, by way of introduction, uh, I'll, I'll try to summarize, but please, you know, augment and uh, and maybe help us focus on what was interesting. But you are, I think you still qualify as a Brit. We we're just discussing off air. You've, uh, you've been in the West Coast for quite some time. Um, you uh, studied at the University of Manchester, Bachelor of Science in Artificial Intelligence. And then you had a pretty long stint in gaming, starting back in 1999, EA Digital Illusions, um, all the way through to, was it 2013? Was it all the way up until Helium? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's been a long uh, been a long adventure. I dropped out of college, um, a university, I should say, to be true to my British roots. Um, Which isn't so fa- fashionable in the UK, right? And in, in the West Coast, it's like the thing to do. But I guess it's, you might have disappointed a few parents doing that in the UK. Certainly did. Although the funny thing was, I was the last year, maybe it's not funny, but I was the last year where it was free tuition in, in England. At the years after me, you had to start paying for it. And so you, you actually would have thought that it was more common to drop out because it just wasn't that big of a deal. Like here, right. everything is so expensive. Right. And so to, to to drop out after spending, you know, like $80,000 or whatever seems even more insane. But yeah, back then it was very non-committal to just say, yeah, screw it. I'm going to go you know, do whatever. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I was fortunate to, you know, back in those days, one of the things that I did a lot was play play video games competitively. So I was like a world champion Quake and, and eventually Quake 3 player. Just because I had so much time on my hands at college, I just, you know, was playing Quake all the time. And I met a lot of people that way, and and one of them uh, was the brother of the founder of this small gaming studio in Stockholm. And so I met him playing Quake, and you know they offered me a job, and so that made it easy to to make the decision to to no longer 
stay, stay in school basically because <laughs> I, I had sort of the well I had my end state you know like I wanted to be a video game developer and it was just sort of sitting there and so I, I didn't you know I, I didn't feel the need to finish school just because I kind of could jump ahead and so you went there as a as a game designer um just interestingly I, I mean I'm assuming you don't have the time to to play certainly not at the level that you used to now Oh, oh yeah, no, no, no. Like uh, those days, I mean, and I'm sure it's even worse now in like the esports universe. But it's like a, I, I used to play probably a good ten or twelve hours a day. That was what wow. it took, and um, and then you'd go out drinking or whatever afterwards. You know, that, was like <laughs> my that, was, that was like my college life in Manchester. And nowadays, it's you know, esports is a very serious business, and there are sponsored teams and salaries, and so I'm sure it's even more you know, even more intense than it was back then. And the playing field is bigger, but yeah, I don't get to, unfortunately I don't get to play many, many video games. I played uh, among us with my daughter the other day. It was like the first time I'd played anything in like in, in years, but it's hard to, like, if you want to play it seriously and you want to win, like it just, it's just a lot. It's a lot of effort. Yeah. And I, funnily enough, I've just um, begun playing that game with my daughter as well. So, um, so tell us about you. So you started doing uh, game design. I believe you were a lead game designer, um, you then, well, you were founding employee and director at Global Gaming League. Presumably, that was the eSports League. So you actually left designing games to play professionally, I guess, for at least six years or something, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, so that company was called GGL. It, it was interesting. I mean, there was all there was so many issues with that company that it's hard to it's hard <laughs> to really know where to to begin, but um it was interesting like it was trying to be sort of the nba of esports before esports was a thing right like it was sort of trying to force it to occur a little bit um and so it was way early right and so you know some of the some of the employees there for example went on to be early employees at at twitch for example and went on to other places uh, so it was sort of the it was the right idea but like a probably a decade too early which was that you could really sort of make it more of a sort of a spectacle make make gaming entertaining uh and we had seen this in south korea especially like where gaming was you know gamers were on cereal boxes and stuff right like they had achieved sort of real celebrity status uh and in the u.s like none of that existed and so yeah it was it was interesting and so we did that for a long time um probably too long honestly and i had met <laughs> I met Sean Fanning through that process somewhere. He was a prolific World of Warcraft player after his uh, after his Napster days, and so we just had a lot of friends in common. Uh, and we had just kept talking about doing stuff at some point in the future. Like he had a he had sold a company to EA at, at one point, um, and so we had just started brainstorming various things. Like we had a bunch of friends that were entrepreneurs that were starting to get into hardware. Like most you know, entrepreneurial endeavors were software and that was just a lot easier. Uh, but we had friends that were trying to do, you know, like people counters in retail uh, places like malls and stuff. So, you know, it's almost like taking web analytics into the real world, which I always thought was a fascinating idea. Um, another friend was building like a go, like a Fitbit kind of a device for, for babies. Um, <laughs> and so people were starting to get into hardware and it was uncovering like all these issues with how difficult it was to build hardware. Um, and so that was sort of the, that was the start of helium for us. That was the start of those conversations was, was really like friends of ours saying like, I'm trying to build this thing and it's just impossible. You know, like I got to deal with this and I got to deal with this It's like an absolute nightmare compared to building like web applications or mobile apps. And that was really what got us thinking about, okay, well, there's a huge, like a huge gap here in like what the, what the experience is supposed to be like and what it actually is like. Uh, and that sort of led us to think about helium and like, is there a way to sort of make that all better so that people like our friends could build could build the applications that they wanted. So before we go into helium, um, there's also something called diversion, which looks like it was the first thing, or at least listed on LinkedIn, which you founded as a co-founder and CTO. Um, was that your first kind of founder experience? Yeah, I'd say so. You know, GGL, I, I was very, very early. I think employee like three or four or something like that. Um, and the same at, at Refraction Games, which is what became DICE and then got acquired by EA. I, I was, you know, again, in the first 10, 10 or 15 employees there. And so I had seen it sort of up close. Um, but as I discovered, like, it's just not the same. It's not the same. <laughs> being, clo being close to it and actually doing it are are very, very different experiences. So yeah, that was my first you know, real founder experience. And um, that was a social gaming company. 
we had Michael Eisner, who's a probably no former Disney yeah. CEO as one of the investors. And uh, Sean was like per peripherally involved there. And yeah, it was, you know, it was interesting. I, I learned a lot there and it was, you know, a similar sort of a mini Zynga kind of a play and was moderately successful for, for a little while. But ultimately one of the, the biggest things I learned is that like, you just can't start something unless you're really, really passionate about doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to be an opportunist for timing is just not the right, it's just not the right thing to do. And uh, so that was one of many, many learnings that I, uh, that I took away from diversion. Well, hopefully we get some of those that bleed out over the course of the conversation, but I think it's a, it's a really good one. You know, at our accelerator, I'm often telling people, especially during a bull run, um, that they need to focus on something that motivates them beyond its success because, you know, most people in crypto now are already crypto rich, perhaps even potentially cash rich. And uh, so to get themselves out of bed in the morning, they need something to really motivate them beyond just money. And so I think um, that is definitely an important uh, message. It's good to hear iterated, uh, reiterated from uh, another founder. So as I said, Helium was founded in 2013. Um, I mentioned what it is today was it different when you founded it so it was around hardware but presumably it wasn't specific to wireless at, at that point so it kind of was right so back then this was 2012 probably we're having this conversation which is kind of scary to think it was almost a decade ago but it, but it almost it sort of plays into the same point like you better really like what you're about to do because it's going to take 10 years plus to do it properly right. um you know, the, the thing that we observed was that people were talking about the Internet of Things all of a sudden, or IoT, and it was supposed to be this sort of like universe of connected things, like literally everything would be connected, right? Like people counters, environmental sensors, fire detection, water leaks, you know, literally anything, right? Like a lot of them aren't the most exciting or like sexy use cases, but they're all real problems and they're, you know, all supposed to be there. And the thing that we we thought was true was that there was two problems. Like one, there wasn't really a wireless network for these kinds of things to connect to because they need to be very power efficient, need to be super cheap. Uh, so you couldn't really use a cellular network. You probably couldn't use a Wi-Fi network or a Bluetooth network because they're just you know the wrong application. Uh, and then the other thing was that the development experience for someone like our friends who were who were also founders was terrible, right? Like so, someone who wanted to build one of these sensors or build a consumer product like the the baby bracelet i mean it's just like no chance right like the tooling is still sort of back in the 70s or 80s and it's just incredibly difficult and so those were the those were the sort of two prongs of problems that we were trying to tackle at the same time it was like one there needs to be a wireless network for these things otherwise they can't exist and two like how do we make it easier for people to build products and applications that work on that network and and that was really led for us by our experience in software development, right? Where over the course of our careers, um, software development had gotten orders of magnitude easier and cheaper. Right? Like when I started in the sort of mid mid nineties, yeah, that stuff was expensive. You know, like you spent half a million dollars at least to build like a cold fusion website or whatever. And, and that was, you know, prohibitive. And as things became open source and the lamp stack came along and people started to be able to build stuff a lot more cheaply, it really changed the kinds of things that people built. And you know, the best example is something like Facebook, right? Which is built in a in a dorm room using a completely open source set of tools. And, and that was what we wanted to try and accomplish in hardware as well, right? Like it should be that easy and it should be that cheap to connect a thing to the internet and, and have it start sending data or doing whatever it does. So at what point did blockchain come onto the radar? I mean, presumably, you know, you've always been close to peer-to-peer -to -peer technology and the things that kind of underpin that. But at what point did it become obvious that a blockchain form of blockchains would be the, the solution to some of the problems that you were facing at Helium or challenges? It took, a, I mean, I, I don't know at any point that it became, <laughs> it became obvious. Um, you know, it's, it was one of these ridiculous ideas to, to, I mean, the whole premise of the company was ridiculous, right? So like to try and build, mm -hmm a wireless network at scale is an endeavor that costs like big telcos, tens of billions of dollars, right? And, and so the idea that you would just sort of do that as a startup on its own is a ridiculous idea. And so we tried like a bunch of different ways to do this. 
uh, including, you know, trying to make it sort of developer refocused so the developers would feel compelled to help build the network. Uh, we, we had companies that were interested in hosting these access points. They're kind of like Wi-Fi access points, but they created, you know, bigger coverage areas. But ultimately, there was no in, the incentive wasn't good enough. That was the problem, right? Like, is that you wanted people to to feel incentivized to build out this network, except there was no reason for them to do it. If you think about Napster, the, the incentive was that you got free music, right? And so you got to participate in this thing, and it was like this good tit-for-tat relationship where I get free music and people get to get my free music, right? And that was a pretty good, that was a pretty good setup back then. And so we tried a bunch of different things. There were so many failures in terms of the, the directions that we took. And uh, it, I mean, it's, it certainly was a long and at times extremely painful journey, but it, it wasn't until sometime in 16 or 17 where, you know, we started looking at some of the other stuff. Like I think it was Filecoin that really inspired us to start thinking in this direction where it's like, okay, well, what if you could incentivize people to build the network by just sort of having them participate in the economics at the end of the day, right? Like that's what everyone wants. And you look at Uber and Airbnb and so many examples of, of people wanting to be able to sort of be their own boss or like, you know, participate somehow. And so one of our engineers just wrote this white paper basically over a weekend about like what would it what it would look like for helium to build its original vision of a wireless network using crypto as as the sort of underpinning of it and i read it i was like this is like this is like we should absolutely do this and so we dropped everything that we were doing at the time um had some very interesting conversations with our investors and board I was gonna uh, ask. about why that was a good idea um and then just got to work on building this thing and at the time there, there weren't many ways to build what helium needed and so we, we ended up having to build a lot of the pieces ourselves and, and starting from scratch and all of this but that's roughly the, the trajectory is like we failed at doing what we wanted to do for several years until was someone on the team figured out a better way to do it and then we just went and did that so that's the sort of summary of of that's the, that's the like six year summary of like how we got to to where we got to yeah it's really interesting and you know you mentioned earlier one of the biggest challenges, both being a startup or being a backer of startups, is timing. And, um, you know, you're a decade away from where you are now and just surviving during that um, is challenging enough. So in terms of, I don't know if you'd call it a pivot, but let's say at least a transformation, what was the process of convincing investors, shareholders. I don't know if you had customers at that time. I know you have, you know, Munich Re as an investor. Presumably they were also a partner in some sense. What was the attitude from stakeholders at that point when you said you wanted to pivot into blockchain? <laughs> uh, it was interesting. And I think this is one of the lessons that I had learned over time was that the right investors really matter a great deal. And, and by the way, that, that's a very hard thing to, for people to hear because you often, as a founder, don't get the choice of who your investors are. Like I, I read a lot of books and it's like this glamorous setting where you have 18 term sheets and you like vet each one of them and pick the best way. Like it's not like that, right? Like you're scrambling for your life every day. And if someone gives you a term sheet, you're thrilled about it and you try and, <laughs> you know, you, you take it, right? And so it's not as easy as just like, you know, vet your investors because you, you often don't have that that choice, right? And so uh, I think we got very fortunate. I mean, our first real big investor in the Series A round was Kosla Ventures. And if you don't know Vinod Kosla, um, probably should, first of all, but he's a prolific VC and was the founder of Sun Microsystems back in the day. Um, but he, you know, he had he has this saying that sort of goes along with with what you were saying there, which is that he he said startups just have to stay alive long enough to get lucky. Is roughly yeah. the is roughly the process, right? Is that if you've got a, first of all, you have to have a good team. But if you've got the you know a good team, then it's it's really a lot of it is about timing and and persistence. Um, and so I, I think we were doing okay at the time that we had this this blockchain idea. It wasn't great. Like we had a, a bunch of wireless IoT products, and we had some decent customers. Like I mean, AstraZeneca was a customer and. You know, so it wasn't like it was going nowhere. It just wasn't going anywhere near what we thought it would go like at the start. Um, and so when this idea came up, it was interesting timing because it was 2017. It was the first round of sort of crypto mania, right? It was like ICO time back back then, right? And like all sorts of like Dentacoin was at $2 billion of value <laughs> or whatever. And, you know, it was just, it was irrational. And 
Um, and I think that made the conversation easier. That wasn't why we were doing it, certainly, because we, we, we chose the hardest way to possibly do it if our goal was to try and just make some easy money. But it made the it made the conversation easier around why it could make sense, right? It's like look at look at what is potentially possible, uh, and then you know having good investors like Kosla and Google Ventures and Firstmark, um, that made that all a lot easier because I think everyone was trying to win in a big way. Like no no one was interested in small wins, uh, and the path that we were on was a small win, right? And and that wasn't really why I was there or why anyone was involved, and so trying to sort of explain the, the potential future that we could end up in, I think made uh, made it a lot easier to sort of make that transition. But it really, I could imagine that going a completely different way if we didn't have the investors that we had. And at that point, and we're going to go into, you know, where you are now, but I don't want to dwell too much on the past, but I think it's a really interesting you know, inflection point. Um, did it have any key considerations around what was proprietary versus open source? Did this allow you to open source more or accelerate that process? Or were you always, you know, very kind of open oriented? I think it was always a battle for us. And, you know, I think this is where the sort of the, the composition of your team really matters a lot in, in ways that I didn't expect that to be true. And, and one of the things that had become obvious to me over time at Helium working with the amazing team that we have was that at, at our core, we were really protocol people or open source people. Like that's really what we wanted to try and do. Like, I don't think any of us had any particular interest in customer acquisition costs and long-term value and thinking of it as a SaaS business. I mean, it just wasn't interesting to us. It's not who we are. And, you know, and, and a little bit of that is me, obviously. Like a, you end up hiring certain people and you sort of construct the team subconsciously in a certain way. And so it ends up becoming your, your own idea of what you want to be ends up becoming true because you sort of hire that way. Um, but that at our core, that was that was who we were, was was someone we wanted to the initial vision was to build this big open network that anyone could use almost for free. And at the time we had no idea how to actually make that come true. And it just turns out that these, you know, protocol first blockchains, and again, a little bit inspired by Bitcoin, Filecoin, and like some of the other really great projects, was the actually the right way to do that, right? Where you could monetize the underlying layer of the system without really caring about what was built on top of it, right? You don't care what uses it to some degree, as long as something uses it, right? And as long as something succeeds. Um, and that was really powerful. I don't think I fully appreciated how powerful that concept was at the time. Now, now I very much do. Uh, but even as we were going through that transition, I think part of me was still like, yeah, maybe there's a, you know, maybe one side of it is this crypto thing and the other side of it is like a SaaS business on top, right? Like that sounds sensible. Right. Um, but as you sort of really got into it and started to understand how this was going to work, you realize that those at times actually could be very diverging and competing ideas, right? Because some things that you really wanted to do to make the network bigger and make the protocol bigger were directly at odds uh, with revenue generation, right? And so, for example, hotspots and manufacturing hardware and stuff like that would be an example when we get to talk about that. But there are things that are, there are two sort of opposing ideas. Um, and so open sourcing everything felt like the right thing to do. It felt like the only way to make this idea succeed. And it also moved us very far away from the the SaaS sort of revenue generation model because it just didn't make sense for, for IoT and the model that we were going after. So I don't know that it was planned. It just was a result of the team that we had and the desire that we had and our, our intention. And just crypto almost was like the perfect way to sort of make that come true uh, and actually be able to like sustain a business at the same time. Yeah, and we're going to talk to uh, we're going to talk about the go to market a little bit later, um, but let's jump into the technology first. And I think you've got some interesting game theoretics. You've got a burn and mint model, uh, or you call it burn and mint equilibrium. Um, so could you just talk us through, I guess, the stack, and then you know how the token optimizes the network and kind of the behaviors that you want to see. Yeah, so on the blockchain side, I mean, again, bearing in mind, we started this probably in late 16 or early 17. Um, there weren't really a lot of viable ways to build something as complicated as Helium. Um, and so we we ended up building everything ourselves, right? So it is, you know, in blockchain speak, a layer one uh, chain. And we were fortunate, again, maybe lucky, fortunate by design, I don't know, um, to have like a lot of distributed systems expertise on the team. 
Like we had a bunch of people on the team that knew how to do this and happened to have done it before. Um, and so building a blockchain for us wasn't a terrifying idea. Uh, so we we built our own our own network, our own chain. Um, and what was what is unique about Helium and is both really fascinating and amazing and also an incredibly annoying aspect of it uh, is that it interacts with the physical world in a way that most blockchain networks don't really have to think about, right? Like our mission is to build a wireless network, right? And that by its sort of definition requires a completely different set of characteristics than building something like Bitcoin, right? Where you just need a lot of hash power in a warehouse somewhere, right? Like we need nodes distributed all across the globe. And so part of what we wanted to do, or part of our realization in that process was that the, the, the sort of two parts of building a wireless network on a blockchain had to be much easier, right? Like mining had to be a lot easier than it was using something like an ant miner or something, right? Where you get a shoebox full of wires basically, and you got to figure out how to do it. Uh, and then setting up a wireless access point for IoT devices also had to be much easier, right? Because that was, uh, at the time, was very much a sort of carrier-focused thing, right? It was assumed that the end user was, you know, the, the CIO or something at a telco, right? And so the user experience was sort of geared that way, right? Where you did everything from a command line and you needed a 48-volt power supply and, you know, just weird stuff that, like, no consumer is actually going to have. So part of what we ended up having to build was a product called the Hotspot, right? Which was a combination of a crypto miner on our blockchain uh, and then wireless access point designed for IoT devices, right? Because again, these are low powered, battery powered sensors. So they have a completely different wireless protocol than something like Wi-Fi or LTE. They're just sending tiny amounts of data very, very efficiently. Um, and so that was part of what we ended up having to build was like a piece of hardware, right? And like, so we actually built a consumer electronics product and that is an incredibly expensive and time consuming uh, process that I have only tremendous respect <laughs> for anyone who undertakes because it's it, capital intensive, right? Everything about it is terrible, yeah. right? It, it takes a long time. It's very capital intensive. As you said, like you're pouring millions of dollars months ahead of seeing any return just sort of like hoping for the best myriad of like unforeseen circumstances. Like there's a fire at a semiconductor facility in Japan derails you for like six weeks and COVID happens, you know, it's just, Everything about it is 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 just a sort of path to ruin, um, but it was the right thing to do because it made it made us able to go to market a hell of a lot easier than if we hadn't done it that way. So, our stack was is basically threefold. It's like the blockchain network itself, um, and that's sort of the engine for all the token economics. It's the hotspot, or at the time it was the hotspot, which was a piece of hardware that that was both a miner and an access point. And then it was a thing called console, which is how people use the wireless network, right? So you mentioned companies like Salesforce and Lime, like people who are actually building the sensors, like the products that take advantage of the network, they needed a sort of a, a sort of a headless management console, like a dashboard to manage all those devices. And so we had to build a thing called console, which is how you do that. So it's an incredibly large scope project. Like sometimes I look at how much we built and I'm just like shocked by it all. <laughs> Because we had to build like three or four complete things that on their own are an entire company's worth of effort, right? Like a lot of the blockchain projects just have to build a blockchain. And I say just with, with air quotes, it's not that easy, but all they have to do is build that. And some companies just build, you know, consumer electronics products and they just do that. And we had to do all of it in order to be able to actually take this to market properly. And did you do that? Did you have to recapitalize or was this all just from the capital of your initial um, fundraise? A little bit of both. I mean, one of the things that, that I had, again, learned from like my past experience was to just be kind of frugal about cash. Um, and sometimes that, again, that's way easier said than done, because sometimes to be frugal about cash, you've got to lay off like half your team, for example, right? And, and so that's not always the easiest thing to do. Uh, but you have sort of a gut feeling, I think, about whether you're heading in the right direction or whether you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And you need to be able to, to trust that a little bit. Um, and so we still had a lot of money left from our A and B round. So Coastal Ventures had led our A round in 2014 and Google Ventures had led our B round in 2016. And we still had a bunch of cash left from that because we had been very conservative about what we were doing. Um, and then we, we had another round that was led by USV and Multicoin. And that was the first time that we had like what I would call crypto investors involved, right? right. Like people who really, really understood um, 
the crypto space and like we're focused on the token economics rather than the equity economics. And so that was in uh, 18. So we still hadn't launched the thing by then, but we were very far along by, by, by that point. Like we, we knew exactly what we were doing and we were far along the, the development of it. Um, so a little bit of both, right? Like I think we could have gone to market without raising that other round, but we would have been in worse shape both from a financial point of view, but also from an access to, to the sort of the, the crypto universe point of view, which I think USV and Multicoin brought to us in a unique way that we just we would have been lost honestly without without those guys. Yeah, and so you chose um, a blockchain rather than say a DAG. I know at one point DAG was the way a lot of people in the IoT space felt that you could scale um, for IoT devices. You know, kind of. Uh, high throughput, but, you know, kind of low data requirements, lots of very small microtransactions and stuff happening. Why did you choose a blockchain over a DAG? I don't think DAGs work as a, as a decentralized concept. And if you look at something like IOTA, which is the only um, real DAG that I know of that is involved in the IoT space peripherally, uh, I mean, they have to have a centralized coordinator to keep track of where the tip of the of the thing is, and and that's the problem, right? Is that you? Um, I don't think with this, with the, and just for if anyone doesn't know, like these direct acyclic graphs are, are difficult to to do in this distributed way because they they grow away from each other, right? Like the tips are all over the place. If you can imagine, I'm doing things with my hands, but obviously you can't see them. But, <laughs> but they're, you know, they're growing away in all sorts of different directions, and someone needs to reconcile what the state of the ledger is at any given time, given that you have all these different tips. And so we, we never thought that that was a feasible idea. There are implementations within other things, like Ethereum, for example, has sort of miniature DAGs inside it, but they always reconcile back to one chain um, due to sort of the Nakamoto consensus model. And so, uh, you know, for us, we actually started with an Ethereum slash Filecoin-like construction where we had these sort of mini DAGs inside a Nakamoto chain. Um, and over time, like we discovered sort of interesting other ways to do it. And we ended up using this protocol called Honey Badger BFT um, that Andrew Miller, who's a professor at University of Illinois created. And, you know, we, we there were just certain things that we wanted and some of them were speed and some of them were cost and some of them were encryption. So sort of censorship concerns and other stuff that was, was gonna happen. So we wanted the transactions themselves to be encrypted rather than be in the clear like they are with Bitcoin or something. Um, so we ended up sort of just ending up in the right place, I think, in terms of the technology we use, just because we were very specific and prescriptive about how we wanted the thing to work. So before we go into um, the rollout strategy, it'd be good to understand so you've you've kind of built something, presumably a stack that could enable other things. So, you know, it, it is the blockchain that you built, could, could it be used for other use cases? Yeah, I mean, our focus initially, so we were very precise about what we what we didn't want it to do. Like we didn't want to have a smart contract language. We didn't want Turing complete smart contract. We, we specifically didn't want those things. And that's not to say that they're bad necessarily. It's just that wasn't the point of what we were building. And we didn't want to lose sight of what our, of our, what our intention was. Um, and so the most immediate obvious thing to do or that could be done with Helium is other types of wireless network, right? Like we started with IoT because that's where we thought the biggest sort of gap in the market was, right? Like we thought that IoT was the least well-served sector of telecom. And I think that continues to still be true. Um, but there's nothing to say that you can't build a cellular network this way. And in fact, we have a lot of conversations with a lot of different entities about doing exactly that, right? Or building citywide Wi-Fi networks this way. Really any scenario where you need to incentivize the building of a wireless network, like Helium is probably the best way to do that. And so it's it's designed very much that way. Like there's nothing very specific about the blockchain that is that is focused on IoT. It is a general construction for incentivizing, um, you know, wireless network deployments. Eventually, I could imagine like layer two things living on top of the network that were more data data focused, right? So, for example, if you had a weather sensor, it would be interesting if you could sell access to the weather sensor to people who wanted to buy it, right? Like maybe you know, weather.com wants to buy access to it. So they get more granular data, who knows, right? They, but those are, I think there's a layer two implementation on top of the network that is much more focused on the data that is created as a result of it than the actual creation of the network. 
we just haven't, you know, spent a whole lot of time thinking about that yet, just because we, I, I still think there's a lot of unfinished business at the first layer. Understood. So uh, let's talk about the go-to-market. As I said, um, you know, you've got a lot of hotspots now. I, I mean, presumably there must be something around density where for you to roll out, you, you would require a, a minimum amount of hotspots with a, with a certain density for it to be useful or, or meaningful. Did you just, does it just happen organically? Are people, you know, throwing hotspots into the network organically or is there kind of a, a design and a strategy behind the rollout? Yeah, it's a good, really good question. At first, we were very torn on this. So at the start, we were the only manufacturer of the hardware, right? Like we created the thing and we sold it. Uh, and so we were going to be very prescriptive about how we sold it or, or more specifically where we sold it. And so we had all these different ideas where, you know, it would be sort of this capture the flag kind of game, right? Where people would, you know, race to, to cover different different areas or different hexes of, of the globe. Eventually, we just sort of abandoned that and, and let it just sort of grow wherever. Uh, and it's sort of interesting to watch. I mean, the, the way that we've, we've tried to guide coverage is effectively through economics, right? Like at some point, it is no longer the most profitable way for you to do the thing to just keep adding hotspots into like New York City, right? right? Like there's already, there's already a thousand hotspots there, right? Like you don't need more. And the reward structure works that way, right? So if you add another hotspot into New York, it is not the best thing for you to do, right? Like you're going to earn some rewards, but you're not going to earn anywhere near as many rewards as if you cover an uncovered area. Um, and so there's a there's a relatively complicated algorithm behind all of this, and we call this system proof of coverage. Uh, and it's been improved by the community over the over the year plus that it's been running. Um, to try and optimize for this sort of density, right? It's it's it trying to create the most rewards for people that are creating coverage at the sort of optimal density and tapering that off as the density is exceeded, right? So again, New York being an example or San Francisco being an example where there are hundreds or thousands of hotspots there. Like we don't need to reward more, right? Like there's no value in adding more hotspots to those already dense areas. And so I think I think that's the right system because it allows the network to be fairly permissionless, right? Like we don't have to dictate or no one has to dictate where hotspots go. It's just in people's best interest to put them in areas where there is less coverage than there is more. Yeah. So I guess you've got market forces, but at the same time, you've kind of got this algorithmic guide that is optimizing um, the economics um, somewhat. Is this, again, is it kind of totally undirected in terms of who are, who are throwing up hotspots? Is it designed for, you know, an SME who's already got some retail space and, you know, this is a way of um, an additional form of revenue? Is it kind of, you, you look at the language that you use and it feels like the people's network feels very consumer oriented at a brand level. What's the kind of yeah, both communication strategy and then I guess like partner strategy. At first, we were very focused on consumers. Like we we thought that that was the right way to start. Right, was to try and you know just everyday people, not even SMBs, like just individuals, right, individual consumers. And our initial PR and marketing work, I think, reflected that. Right, like it was a very consumer electronic kind of approach. We have this sort of cutesy YouTube video commercial and. You know, it it and I think that worked, right? Like people understood, at least early adopters understood what we were trying to accomplish, um, and that you know I think that was the right approach. Like what we've what we've seen after that um, is that the the it's more complicated than that, right? Like there's some combination of SMBs that are like small businesses that are are building coverage. They're now, I think there's something like a dozen venture backed companies building things on top of Helium. Right, so like mining pools, uh, like hardware manufacturers, like all sorts of different entities have now sort of sprung up on top of the network, and some of these guys are are of the model where you know they'll give you a hotspot for free, and in exchange they'll take you know eighty percent of the mining rewards or fifty percent. There's competition in that space, right? Like they all offer different shares, um, and so that kind of stuff is is super interesting. It's sort of how we hoped it would go. We no longer manufacture hotspots. We right. made. We made thirteen or fourteen thousand at the start. We felt like we had to do it, otherwise it was never going to get started, and the user experience was going to be too complicated. 
but after it got sufficient momentum, like we just left the market. We, we, we let partners and third parties like take over that spot. And now there's like half a dozen hotspot manufacturers that are now taking that role, offering different things at different price points. Like one's outdoor, one's indoor, one has a bigger antenna, one doesn't, you know, all sorts of different competition there. Um, but again, I, I think the right way to like, it, to, to, mo to model this is that the economics sort of dictate what you should be doing. Uh, and we still, I think the marketing is still very much focused at individuals and people, as you said, like we, we, we sort of nickname it the people's network and, and the marketing sort of reflects that. Um, but there are, you know, these, this sort of layer of companies on top. And I think of it similarly to like Bitmain or something in the Bitcoin space or any of the mining pool operators that operate on top of Bitcoin is a very similar kind of model, right? Where there's a way for you to participate without having to buy like a warehouse full of, of ASICs. And so how does this interact with telcos? Because I think some of the language you used was that it appends the telco model. Um, as you move into geographies where there are either near or absolute monopolies in a telco context, like environments like Africa, for example, where there's almost zero competition, how, how do you interplay with them, if at all? And we certainly had a lot of conversations with nearly all the telcos, at least in North America and most of Europe. Um, and I think the, I, I don't know how to say this other than the smarter ones realize that this is probably the, the future way, whether it's helium or something that looks like helium, doesn't really matter. But like th this, is the, this is the future way that networks are going to be deployed in the same way that, you know, it would be absurd to think about operating a cab company in the, like versus Uber or Lyft or something, right? It just seems obvious in hindsight. And I think some telcos get that and they realize that consumers are sitting on massive swaths of real estate that have power and internet backhaul. And that's really all you need in order to operate a cell tower, right? Like those, you, everyone has the ability to be a cell tower if you give them the tools. And so the smarter ones, I think, get that. The other ones just sort of mock us. And I, I, I save all those quotes and emails and I just have a pile of them because I love that. It's like fuel for me. Um, and they just don't, you know, they think it's a toy. They think it's a gimmick. I actually just read a white paper over the weekend about the dangers of decentralized hotspot networks, which didn't name us, but just, you know, said it in those terms. Um, but I, I think it, it really does to me feel like Airbnb or Uber where Again, it, I'm not saying that we're going to do it perfectly or that it's even going to be helium. It's just, to me, blatantly obvious that this is the right way to build wireless networks. And the old way is absurd, right? Where a single telco pays for every single aspect of the rollout, it's just impossible. Like you can't scale it, you can't maintain it, you can't compete with it. Um, and so it will be like Airbnb or Uber in the future where it's like, of course, that was the way to do it. Like it was ridiculous that you did it any other way. Uh, and that's how it, that's sort of the point where I think some of these telcos get that immediately. Like as soon as they see what we've done, there's 18,000 online, but there's something like 60,000 sold. And we hope there, we hope that there'll be over a hundred thousand by the end of the year uh, in terms of hotspots deployed. So it's going to be obvious. It's going to become more and more obvious that this is the right way to do things. And that the crypto economic structure where people get to earn, get to participate is really the, the right way to incentivize that. The hard part, I think, for telcos to swallow is that they don't own the network anymore, yeah. right? Like it's actually owned by this like group of people and they're just like a sliver of the revenue share in the model. I think that's weird for them, but it's also not impossible for them to grasp because it's sort of the way the cell tower companies work. Like most people don't know this, but people like Verizon and T-Mobile and AT&T, they actually don't own their cell towers. They just lease them from other companies that do own them. And so there's that model sort of exists. It's just It's just at a different level and it hasn't been sort of granularized down to consumers or individuals that are able to participate. Yeah, and I mean, there's, there's a couple of questions that, that fall out of that um, as we kind of look to close off, but I think the consumer brand piece then feels more important, right? So as you were saying, um, perhaps one way, one way that uh, telcos could counteract this if they chose that strategy is this kind of trust piece, you know, that, well, if you're relying upon these hotspots and it's totally decentralized, you know, how can you trust them? Presumably that then requires you to build a consumer brand because, you know, it, I mean, it, it, is that a priority for you or is it, does it still work even if it's just white labeled in a way, like the end user doesn't know that they're using a helium? 
hotspot? I think it matters. I mean, whether it's a helium hotspot or whether it's the notion that you are the sort of owner of the network, I think that matters a great deal. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about the telco space, and I said at the start that it was like one of the most insidious industries, like I can't, I have not in my eight years of doing this found anyone who likes a telco, <laughs> right? It's like the, it's like the easiest industry to hate in the UK. It was BT at the time. Now it's probably three and O2 and whoever else. But at the time it was like the BT was like the enemy of the state, right? Like you hated it. And here it's Comcast and AT&T and Verizon and like, wherever you are in America, like you probably hate your provider of, of internet service for whatever reason, right? And, and so it's a very easy industry to like penetrate that way because the, the, the sort of like general feeling or NPS or whatever you want to call it for those companies is so low. Like we all think that they're stealing our data and there's privacy concerns and they're reselling it and they're overcharging us and there's arbitrary taxes. And there's like a million reasons I like in, in, encounter as to like why people hate their internet provider. And most of all that you're sort of stuck with the one that you have, like where I am, there's one provider and that's kind of it. And so I think this feeling of like empowerment is, is really valuable and, and interesting where, you know, people want alternatives and this is a way for them to do that. IOT is a little bit nebulous, right? There are not that many consumer facing IOT end applications yet, right? Most of them are industrial applications like utility monitoring or water leak detection or whatever. And so there's still a little bit of a disconnect between the person that's helping build the network with a hotspot and the end user who is probably like a medium size or large enterprise, right? So there's still disconnect there. But once you start thinking about cellular as the application, then the disconnect is gone completely, right? It's like, I am the operator of the Helium network and my neighbor is a subscriber and they're using an iPhone, right? And they're paying me for access to the internet. And that's like, everyone can understand that. And everyone is going to want to participate in that because it's an incredibly lucrative business. There are not many industries in the world that are measured in the trillions of dollars, right? And telecoms is one of them. And to be able to like participate in that by basically saying like, hey, we built you this system that allows you to stick a device in your window and compete with the telcos, I think is amazing. And I think everyone who sort of thinks of it in those terms also like concludes that that's, amaz that's an amazing idea. So if we, if we zoom out now, um, as you say, I mean, it, it, you could be one of the first consumer brands that has this IoT device in a home um, I guess it can also function as a node for other things. I know you're laser focused on this particular market and solving this problem and presumably, you know, being a, a global a global brand, there's a lot more to do. But um, if you were kind of, you know, to put that aside and to just theorize on what else could happen once this network was in place, once that device was installed in somebody's home, you know, where else could this go? Because obviously we've seen with telcos in, say, Africa, there are now payment networks. You know, people pay one another with credit for that network. Could could this, you know, similarly expand in terms of what that, that node in somebody's home could do in the context of, of Web3 and, and crypto? I think so. I mean, in the end, you you can imagine that. Like, there's all sorts of interesting stuff being built. Like, there's a, there's a project called Akash, which... Is, is you know basically installing these little sort of computers in people's homes as this this sort of mesh version of EC2 or AWS, which I also think is amazing. Uh, those guys seem to be executing really well. So I think there's all sorts of stuff that could be done. Um, you know, interesting that you mentioned Africa and emerging emerging markets because those are probably the right place for helium to exist, right? Where they're, you know, in the US or the UK or Western Europe, like there are a lot of telcos, right? In your you may hate your telco, but probably it's pretty good, right? And you're just arguing over price and some philosophical obligation to feel bad about it. But in 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 emerging markets, especially in places like Africa, like there's green field there, right? Like there is no wireless infrastructure to speak of there, and this might just be the way that wireless infrastructure gets built there forever. I remember, not to name drop too much, but I was at a Coastal Ventures CEO summit, and Al Gore got, was was there speaking. Uh, Vinod always gets like the biggest names possible to like speak at his thing. And one of the things that he showed was, was that in a lot of like developing areas, they've just skipped the electricity grid completely. Like they don't have a grid. They just have solar panels everywhere. 
right? Because there's no point in building this grid with like wires connected to each other. It's just a ridiculous seeming, right? In, in a in a completely new construct. And so I feel like this is the same kind of thing where it's like you should build internet access this this way, right? Like that's that's how it should be done rather than depending on some big company to come in, big dig trenches and lay fiber and like do all the stuff. And so that's, you know, that's where I expect that Helium has the most impact over time is that these emerging markets where there is literally no infrastructure to speak of or that it's poor or that it, you know, or, or that there's, you know, no competition or whatever. Like those are the places where I think Helium can have the most impact. Uh, but of course, just as a as a person living in America, I hope that it has a huge impact here because I'd love to see it. Yeah. And look, that said, I mean, you know, there's a huge push to have uh, rural coverage just even here in the UK, I'm sure it's uh, true in the US as well, where, you know, effectively, rightfully so, there's an argument that people are being uh, economically excluded because of lack of or poor coverage um, from, you know, an increasingly digital economy. So it's definitely, um, there's there's many a case why something like this would need to exist even in what you might regard as a fairly mature telco market. Yeah, and you could think of it symbiosis also with something like Starlink, right? So what Elon Musk and and his crew are doing with Starlink is super interesting, right? And so you can imagine having a wireless network backhauled over something like Starlink as a way to create wireless network coverage in a completely underserved area, right? And so maybe you have a few uh, like backhauled nodes th- through Starlink, but most of the connections are through through hotspots or like some equivalent piece of hardware. So it's a, access to like the internet, I think, is just the, the most fundamental thing at this point. It's like such a huge disadvantage to not have it. So I love this push into like rural areas, and I don't think there are. I don't think the two ideas are at odds with each other. Like one is what you could imagine, sort of a, the, the sort of main nodes in a network being backhauled to the internet through Starlink, and the rest is sort of a more mesh-like network or a terrestrial-based network uh, on the ground. I, I think they they can live in harmony. Um, and that just sort of opens opens up the opportunities for more and more stuff to exist in like areas where it was impossible to like backhaul to the internet in the first place. Yeah, well, considering that Musk has just bought 1.5 billion uh, worth of Bitcoin, and simultaneously, I was reading a stat yesterday: 25% of all satellites are now controlled by him, and they reckon it'll be 50%. Um, so um, you know, maybe uh, maybe that's on the cards at some point. Um, Amir, thanks so much for coming on. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. I think we've had you on for just under an hour, which has been a real pleasure. Um, thanks for being so candid about your, your founder journey. I know a lot of founders uh, will have got a lot of value from it. And um, I look forward to watching your progress throughout uh, 2021 and beyond. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a, also been a pleasure. And uh, I hope everyone listening participate, <laughs> participates in Helium over, over a long enough timeline. Go by a hotspot, exactly. Awesome. Thanks yeah. for coming on. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.